Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ring of Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett as we get you ready for the Patriots and the Packers coming up on Sunday. Joining us now from the Herald and the Pats Interference Podcast, it is Andrew Callahan. Andrew, what's up, man? Good to be back with you, Brian. Happy to have you, man. So we got to start with, I mean, what a bizarre week. So in your mind, which was the Otter press conference? Mac Jones, when it looked like a hostage video when he kept saying that, hey, you're going to have to ask coach. We're taking it by day by day. Or Bill, his press conference where he said day by day, I think at least 39 times. Yeah, close. It was for me, it was Mac more because we hadn't seen that. Right. Like we've all been used to the it's on to Cincinnati. We've, uh, you know, spun that phrase for our own purposes, made fun of it. Like this was just the updated 2022 version of it's on to Cincinnati day by day. But Mac, as you mentioned, was like someone had a gun to his back just saying this. And I had the last two questions and I go, okay, Mac, today it was reported that today you decided on a second opinion. Is that true? And he was just he was just telling us to kick rocks. Yeah, that was unbelievable. The other thing that cracked me up about the Mac one, he was asked by someone and you were there. So I don't know who it was, but somebody asked Mac how it felt in the moment. And he said, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, he uh, again, Kick Rocks was was the, the essence of his message there. But honestly, the question was first about like, can you just take us through the play? Like, what did you feel? Obviously, it wasn't great. And he's doing that. Oh, any any questions you have to ask Bill? It's like, OK, Bill knows a lot. Bill doesn't know what it's like to get spun down and have your left ankle twisted like that. So that's what the, the follow-up was. And he still was like, no, he was not having any of it. Andrew, do you get, get there's any sense of like a division between Max Camp and the Patriots? Because there's been a lot out there. Like there's been some reporting about, hey, he could have this tightrope surgery. He could have some type of procedure. Mac wouldn't like to have a procedure. Do you think there is any disagreement there between the team and Mac? You know, I can't say that for certain. And I think where that really started with was a lot of talk radio. And this isn't to, you know, disparage your old friends back there at the, uh, the station. And it was actually the opposite station. So I won't make mention of it. But look, I, I just want to deal in the facts. I think him getting a second opinion is a report that I trust also came from Mike Giardi. 
And when you have injuries like this, where the range of recovery can be so wide, it's natural to want to get more information. Theoretically, he could come back in two to three weeks if he heals miraculously, or it could be eight weeks and he might involve surgery. Naturally, you want to know, do I have to go under the knife or not? But the fact that he wants a second opinion to me is not enough to say like, oh, there's some big disagreement against the Patriots. Like the first things that came out about Mac and this injury where he's going to do whatever it takes to get on the field. He's a maniac. We know that about him. So the Patriots obviously want him on the field. I think that alone is going to kind of keep them in lockstep, even if he wants to gather more information in that process of getting back to the field. Yeah, and so going with the assumption that it could be Brian Hoyer playing on Sunday, it's and we'll get into like the offense in general because it's been odd to look at some of the stuff with this team, Andrew, but going with that, do you think a lot changes from a game plan standpoint and how they approach the Packers with Hoyer as the quarterback rather than Mac? Yeah, it's funny because Matt LaFleur answered this in his uh, Wednesday press conference with Packers reporters, and he said no. So I'm not saying I don't know better than Matt LaFleur. Generally with football, that would be true. But I, I agree with him because you look at the Packers' defense and the Patriots, you know, as advertised, like to shift in game plan and morph into what their opponent does worst. What Green Bay does worst is very obvious, and that's stop the run. They're 32nd dead last by DVOA. They're second to worst in PFF grades. So the Patriots are going to pound the rock as the best run offense in the league by DVOA. So I think when you look at that, I'm not saying it doesn't matter who's under center, but of all the game plans that they're going to put together this week, I think this could be the run heaviest depending on how the game flow goes. So they're going to hammer them up front and not only just hammer them. I think when you look specifically at the runs that Green Bay on film struggles with, it's a lot of power. It's a lot of counter. It's not the outside zones that we were talking about earlier this season. They give up seven yards per carry against those two plays. I think you're going to see a ton of them, which doesn't really mean a whole lot, whether it's Brian Hoyer handing the ball off or Mac Jones. Yeah, so what do you make of this, the running game going forward? Because last week, what jumped out to me is Stevenson was way more productive than we saw from Damian Harris. But we know that Damian Harris is a really good back as well. Do you think in the future they'd be more likely to sort of play the hot hand rather than go to that routine of going back and forth between those two guys? Yeah, I think I would rather ran, run with the better back, right? Like, you know, hot hand is going to depend on the offensive line. If there's been an adjustment on defense, are they shooting gaps? Are they slanting lines? Are they doing something different overall? Or it's just the offensive line had a bad series. But when you look at the numbers, <clears throat> excuse me, independent of the offensive line, like what's a Stevenson doing after contact versus Damian Harris? How many tackles is he breaking? Stevenson is way out ahead of Damian Harris. And even just the raw numbers, Stevenson, 6.1 yards per carry. Harris, 3.7 against the Ravens who also had a bad run defense. So I think it's not the hot hand. I would just lean towards Stevenson, who I think is already a better player. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And the other thing that jumped out to me too, Andrew, you mentioned those is the, I was looking at the next gen stats in terms of the eight man boxes. And for some reason, Stevenson last year, he was at 41.3% around there, 41.4% in terms of how often he saw eight man boxes, which was the second most in the NFL. This year, that number's down to 10.3%, which is 32nd. And Harris is still at 25.7%, which is six. So why do you think that is? I, I remember Fox put up this graphic last week about like the under center versus the gun. And when the Patriots are under center, they were running 84% of the time. When they're out of the shotgun, it was 74% pass. So do you think this is a tell that the Patriots are giving to the defense? That's why Stevenson is seeing lighter boxes than he did a year ago? No, I think that has to do more with the game situation, right? I mean, as soon as Ty Montgomery goes down, I'm saying, okay, Stevenson is here. 
fantasy players like load up, get Stevens in your lineup because he's going to play on third down. So when you're on third down, you're typically not seeing those loaded boxes. You've got safeties kind of getting spooked out of there. They're going to place them too high or they might rotate late, but you're not packing the box. Whereas Damian Harris plays in early downs. We know he's not going to see a whole lot on third down. So I think that's why he's seeing those loaded boxes. As far as, um, you know, the rest of it goes, I mean, it, it, you know, with Stevenson, I think he's a better player, like I mentioned overall, but I don't know that there's a tell there with the under center because a lot of teams when they go under center are going to be in the 80% range. Like it's higher than you would like at this point in the year. But I think what they'll say is we know teams are pretty sure we're going to run. But on those one out of four, one out of five plays, when we pull play action, we should really be able to punish them because they're crashing down. I think you'll see more play action this week against Green Bay, who we know is going to be desperate to stop the run. Yeah, Andrew, do you think down the road that there could be any sense of like discord with Harris, considering he is entering that year where he's essentially playing for a contract long term? And look, I, I would not be paying running backs big money anyway, but do you think there could be a problem down the road there if Harris and or excuse me, if Stevenson starts to take even more snaps from him? Sure. I, I mean, what I know about Damian Harris is he's one of the hardest runners that I've ever covered or ever seen. And that I think he's very aware of public perception because you know, there's not often a week or a post game that goes by where he's not in front of a camera or a microphone. And that's part on our effort, but also part his. So I think for him, the perception in his fourth season, you mentioned going into a contract year, is going to be really important to him. So if Stevenson starts to see more carries, and I don't think the Patriots see the discrepancy between them is so big that we have to roll with Ramondre Stevenson. Like, Damian Harris is a good, useful player. I just think he's more limited and more established than what he is versus the second-year kid who's breaking more tackles than he is. So, yeah, I think you know down the line, if the season goes south, it certainly could be something. And if it does, we're going to hear about it from one Damian Harris. Yeah, one of the things that I've been fascinated about is this offense, Andrew. So one of the things we heard prior to the season is, hey, maybe they'll take some of the things that Mac did well at Alabama. And Matt Patricia actually talked about that this week. He said we looked back at his deep passing and it was something that he was really good at. Now, when I heard this thing about like they were going to use some of this stuff from Alabama, I thought, oh, more play action, more RPOs, that type of stuff. But it comes down to, hey, he's going to throw the ball down the field more. And the numbers would back it up. Intended air yards, fourth of the NFL, a dot fourth of the NFL, pretty much the same thing. But if you look at the 20 plus yard passes, Pro Football Focus does this. He's First incompletions at 10. He's first in attempts at 20. It's 20.6% of his t attempts, which is second. This is nowhere near the offense we saw last year in terms of the scheme and the passing game. Are you surprised that they've taken this avenue? Not really, because I think you look at last year and that was a heavy play action passing game, right? Like they majored in all of the safe throws. And for Mac, that meant play action throws. It meant a lot of out routes. And this year, I think they're more comfortable in saying play matchup ball because we also can't rely on those the way the structure of the offense now to generate those chunk plays. They've run nine play action passes lowest in the league. So if you're going to sap that from your offense, all that explosion, you've got to put it somewhere else. And what they said is, OK, as we were running more play action last year, we were also pressed more than any other offense in the league. Teams were just saying, we're going to line up, we're going to play one-on-one, -on -one, and we dare you to beat us. And so this year they're saying, okay, we might not be able to separate, which was the reason teams are doing that last year, but we'll win at the catch point. So like those Alabama years, you know, where you got a lot of ones for guys like even Devontae Smith or certainly Jalen Waddell, you know, like just throw it up and let them make a play. Devontae Parker and Jacoby Myers aren't those caliber of players, but you run into the least amount of trouble with the higher upside of a one-on-one -on -one ball that's 30 or 40 yards down the sideline because either Parker will catch it, it'll go incomplete, or the defender gets a hand on it, but he's already out of bounds because you're up against the sideline. So they're kind of taking calculated gambles, 
sapping some of their play action and just saying, we'll throw it up so long as we can generate those one-on-ones because we can't trust our guys to win short or intermediate in those scenarios and situations anyway. Yeah, I just, I, and I look at the net results too, right? So the only quarterback that has started three games that it is a worse passer rating than Mac is Justin Fields. He's got the five interceptions so far this season as well. Do you think Mac has taken this, I don't want to say too seriously, but is he's gone so far to the extreme where it feels like at times this year, he's almost been a gunslinger and he's trusting a guy like, for example, Parker a little bit too much. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you saw Parker was uh, at fault for the interception in the end zone against the Ravens. He's missing some pre-snap communications. He's been the intended target on all four picks, which have not entirely been Devontae Parker's fault. But I think they're they're still figuring a lot out. Like the only constant here, A, is change. B, is Jacoby Myers. That dude led the team in receiving at 20. He did it last year. He's on pace to do it again, even after missing a game. So for them, everything else around them is a question mark. And when the Patriots aren't playing, they're a probable second best receiver and certainly best in a person at basis in Kendrick Bourne. Like you're going to have question marks. That means players worse than him are playing ahead of getting those snaps. So I don't know what's going on there beyond they think the ability to kind of play 11 personnel and 12 at the same time through little Jordan Humphrey who got cut and then passed over by every other team in the league on cutdown day. Like, great. What are the results there? Oh, zero catches and one target. Cool. Kendrick Bourne's doing that when he's backing him up you know, to, you know, four catches and 56 yards, whatever it was on Sunday. So they're sifting that out. Mac is both, you know, perpetuating some of those bad ideas as the guy who has to run the plays, but he's also the recipient of some of what I think is bad process that's leading to the results that you mentioned, passer ratings that are way in the toilet. All right. So you mentioned Kendrick Bourne, which is just this thing to me is going back to the offseason. I've been hyping this guy up, Kendrick. So maybe I'm just take committed, Andrew, but this is going to be the breakout season for him. And then I've gone through like all the advanced stuff tell you that you should be playing Kendrick Bourne more. And then we see this new stat that comes out from ESPN's analytics team this year where Kendrick Bourne doesn't qualify. But if he did, he would be number one in the NFL. So where I'm at, Andrews, I'm like almost admitting defeat with this. At this point, they got to make one of two choices. Either play Kendrick Bourne more like I believe that would be my choice. Play him more because I think he's a really good player. Or trade him because he's on a really good contract. What is the point of having him around? Because eventually, like we were talking about earlier in terms of Damian Harris, maybe he's upset down the road. We're a long time away from that. But I don't think we could be that far away from Kendrick Bourne being really pissed off and this situation getting even worse. Yeah, so I talk to people around Kendrick pretty consistently and now see him in the locker room. He, he's not pissed off or close to it. Like, it, we'll give it a couple more weeks. We'll see what this comes about. He says coaches know best, and this is not like the Mac kick rocks BS that we got from a quarterback on Monday. This is a guy who kind of wears his emotions on his sleeve. Now, just going back a little bit, because I think this context is important, like the decision to not play him, you know, ahead of a Nelson Aguilar stems from the fact that he was their fourth or fifth best receiver in camp. Like practice performance was down, had the fewest catches and practices. Once the pads came on, Taekwon Thornton was outperforming him. Thornton gets hurt. Now he's back in that wide receiver four role. That doesn't excuse him playing behind little Jordan Humphrey, who has recovered, got cut and passed over by 31 other teams. <laughs> but it's to say that, like, what are you weighing? That one summer where Kendrick had a few bad practices and didn't really show up in the preseason was actually late or the years of his career before where he proved himself a useful player who's still ascending, still in his prime. So that, I think, is what the Patriots are kind of stuck on. And I think for them, you don't trade them. No question about it. They've already gotten calls, I can tell you, from multiple AFC contenders, um, including some that are on their schedule. So they're not just going to give him away. He's under contract next year. Jacoby Myers is not. Aguilar is not. If you're going to deal one of them, I would say sell high on Aguilar 
who at this point in the season, his salary is not going to be what it was. The further you're getting into the year, maybe you take on some of that yourselves because Bourne is under contract. It's team friendly. He's going to get better. I think they just need to realize like we all have a couple of bad months at work, but his career should speak for itself at this point, especially the year he had last season. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not surprised that you said that teams are calling about Kendrick Bourne, because why wouldn't you if it looks like it's a bad situation for him here? And to your point on Aguilar, that may make a lot of sense, because Aguilar, besides the fumble that we saw last Sunday, he's had a really good start to the season. Yards per reception, all that stuff. He's been very productive in terms of his catch rate is way better than it was a season ago. So do you think that that may happen, that they may sell high on Aguilar, as you alluded to? Yeah, and it's not only just Kendrick Bourne coming up the ranks. Uh, Tyquan Thornton's coming back. He'll be eligible to come off IR after this Sunday. And I was talking to someone within the team who said he was in consideration, you know, to be out there as part of the real starter rotation week one or week two. So that's a player they were very happy with for two months at work. You know, forget what he had done at Baylor in his college career. But I think he's going to be in the mix. And he fits what you were just talking about. All the air yards, the 50-50 balls I mentioned, down the sideline, back corner of the end zone, that's where they're kind of shifting towards. And he's got the speed to carry out those plays and take the 50-50 balls into 70-30 if he just gets some more separation. So, yeah, I think if Aguilar keeps producing, you mentioned the numbers there, like you want to sell high on a player like that who frees up the cap space, which is why he was getting shopped and Isaiah Wynn was also on the block earlier this year. So they're going to have a log jam there here soon, and that's one way to solve it provided they want to stick with the tight ends who also just might get benched once they get Thornton back. Yeah. And that may, is that part of the little Jordan Humphrey thing, right? Because it feels like at this point, Hunter Henry's playing significantly less than he was a season ago, or at least when he's out there, he's way less productive than when he was. They still really haven't found a way to get Jonu Smith involved heavily. It felt like at times last week, even Mac was just like forcing him the ball and one of those plays just threw it at his feet. It just feels like Andrew they're not getting much out of those guys. Is that why we're seeing little Jordan Humphrey? It's because of the blocking aspect that he brings to the game? Yeah, believe it or not, yes. <laughs> that's, that's it, which seems crazy because, again, they think they can present as like 11 personnel. We got three receivers, but then block as if they have a second tight end because the dude is six foot four and 230. Again, to that, I would say defenses are going to start to ignore him as a receiver and treat him like a tight end and say, you know what, we trust our safety to cover him one on one because, A, we know he's not going to get the ball. Again, 50 something odd snaps last week, one target, zero catches. And, you know, as a runner, if we play base defense or against these run plays, like we can overpower him with a with a linebacker. So it's part of that. I think Kendrick Bourne, though, doesn't offer you such a drop off in blocking that the upside he offers you as a receiver, his job as a wide receiver, like should be ignored or nullified. Like the get the jump you get in the bonus from the, the pass catching skills that he has, you know, way outweighs the deficit and, and run blocking. Like, you, you pass to win. This is football in 2022. So I think, yeah, that's part of it. But no question. I mean, Hunter Henry, whether it's run blocking or pass catching, has disappointed this year. Yeah, that seems like such a nightmare for this team, right? Because so the cap hit, correct me if I'm wrong, is $23.3 million for Henry and Janu Smith combined after the restructuring of one of those contracts, right? So you're not playing one of those tight ends. So you can use a guy that, as you mentioned, any other team in the league could have had little Jordan Humphrey. And so little Jordan Humphrey's on the field, which means one of your best playmakers in Kendrick Bourne isn't on the field. Am I connecting all those pieces correctly? Yeah. And again, I think it's important to remember, and they would tell you, we're going to go week to week. It'll depend on the defense that we see. They're also still trying to find out their identity. But I don't think it's hard to say Kendrick Bourne's among your top five best offensive players. And the production hasn't been there. That's tied to his opportunity. Little Jordan Humphrey is in the top five. Like you're talking about the running backs, probably Henry, 
and then Parker and Bourne or maybe Aguilar forces his way into the mix. So wherever that combination falls, get those guys on the field. Forget, you know, at some point how we can show one thing and do another. Like you're not an offense right now that is operating at such a high level. You can skip over the basics of playing your best player. So, yeah, I, I don't think they skip or take a whole lot into consideration with the salary cap. I think they just look at a guy like John U. Smith, who they are starting to feature more, particularly in these RPOs, and say, we can get more out of him. But the, the money, the production, the return on that investment obviously isn't good across the board. All right, and then just flipping this, looking at this game on Sunday with Aaron Rodgers, of course. The Packers have not had a great start offensively, of course. No Devontae Adams there. How do you expect the Patriots to sort of try to slow down Aaron Rodgers in this game? Yeah, it's funny because we remember a year ago last year, uh, week four, Brady comes back, and we're all wondering the same question of how is Bill going to defend Tom Brady? First time, obviously, they went head-to-head. And in reviewing that film, I found out he used a game plan that they had used at Kansas City in the week before that when they go and lose, which we now know is Brian Hoyer's last start. And they dropped eight on over 30% of their defensive snaps against Mahomes, against Brady. And I would bet they do this again against Rodgers to kind of frustrate him because you look at the receivers on the outside, Romeo Dobbs, the fourth round rookie who is leading them in every category after him, it's Robert Tunyon as a tight end. Like that's it. They can man up and play this team, which they did against Mahomes, and they did against Brady. You'll see guys drop into short zones in the hook curl areas. You'll have one deep safety. Sometimes we'll invert that with two deep safeties, one guy underneath. It'll be a lot of disguise. I think though the difference in those KC and Tampa games is that Green Bay's game is a lot better on the ground. Like the Aaron Jones is no joke. That offensive line is very good. But once they get to Rodgers on third down, I think it's going to be the same looks because I was talking with Ted Johnson actually or today for my podcast. He said, we did a lot of that drop eight stuff for Peyton Manning. So this seems to be like the one through line to all of Belichick's great game plans for elite quarterbacks, which Brady went through last year and told Peter King about like, you only have to go two years back to find out what I think he's going to do on Sunday against Rodgers. Drop a whole lot, not blitz. Rodgers is number one against the blitz, according to PFF. Like, just do the opposite. It's really that simple. Yeah. So, did Brady? So, are you saying that Brady like expected that defense to come? That's what he told Peter King. Well, he w- he told Peter King that he went through all of the game plans Belichick's run and put together the last ten years against the league quarterbacks. So a lot of Peyton stuff, some Rodgers, obviously Mahomes, and so that's where he thought he would start with. But it's funny, the most recent of those was Mahomes 2020, and that's the only one he really needed to see. Like, the coverage structure was all the same, something different, you know, up front. But, like, in terms of the drop eight, playing man coverage and over 70% of the snaps, they blitzed him on, I think it was 15%. Like, you go back through, and it's just the same. 2020 Mahomes, Brady 2021, I think we'll get Rodgers 22 on Sunday. All those same numbers down the line. That's fascinating. You know what would have been really funny if – Bill did the opposite to Tom. And then Tom's like, wait, does he not think I'm an elite quarterback? <laughs> yeah, the ultimate middle finger, yeah. <laughs> that would have been funny. The one other thing, too, just in terms of the defense is I was looking at the – because obviously they're going to try to get the Packers in this scenario. They're going to try to force them into difficult third downs and whatnot. The Patriots' third down defense, 27th in the NFL in conversion rate. What do you see as being the problem so far? I mean, even Mitchell Trubisky converted a third and a 17 and a third and 10 against this defense. Yeah, I think a lot of these numbers early in the season, you just got to remember they're small samples. Um, but I think Lamar certainly is the answer to that question last week. I think the Ravens were 5 of 11, and that's an offense that's predicated on good efficiency on first and second down. So they can run their same stuff on third down with a lot of these option runs and pitches. And Miami was fairly successful in other yards after catch team. 
kicked a couple of field goals, had some long drives. So, you know, the teams that stayed on schedule, it really starts first and second down. Like they need to be able to, as the Patriots, dictate the terms of engagement of this is going to be a high throwing game against our man coverage versus, you know, the, the Packers get to set that outside zone. Then they're running off it. Then they're running boots off of it. Like that's really where it comes down to. They've fallen behind in the first half. The Patriots are scoring one, one point per game in the first quarter. And then the offense for the other team, again, gets to set those terms of engagement. This, the first quarter Sunday is going to be a really big story because they need to get themselves into those favorable third downs. But when they don't, you give up points and you're playing from behind. That's crazy. One point per first yeah, quarter. 31st. Yeah. I think it's Arizona is <laughs> the only one down there below. Probably the worst coached team in the league. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, the guy in Las Vegas may have a bone to pick with you about that. Josh McDaniels. Yeah, that's man. true. How about yeah. that? Owen three. I mean, that's incredible. And I always thought that was like a bad gig for him to take. I get it. There's only one of 32, like the whole cliche. But you go into a division that has Herbert has Pat Mahomes, and now even though Russell Wilson has not had a great start to the season, I would say entering the year he had the fourth-best quarterback. I just didn't see the path, the avenue, that he was going to have much success there based on the division. Yeah, I mean, you got to understand the mindset for a lot of these guys, head coaches, GMs, quarterbacks. is like, I'll go in and I'll have my way. I mean, there's even a thread right now going around from some ex-Broncos player when McDaniels was in there, obviously a very different time, 08, 09. The first bullet in this thread of just horrible stories none of us would ever want leaked about us at work is McDaniel saying, don't worry about the quarterback situation, which, first of all, sense no one should ever utter around pro football. <laughs> the second sentence was, I can turn a high school quarterback into an all pro. So these guys are going into any situation, which I think actually was favorable. The division, no doubt, super difficult, but who knows where, where anyone will be in two to three years in, in the NFL. It was more about you have a quarterback who's safely in the top half of the league. You've got a good amount of cap space. You've got great weapons and the freedom. Like they were both locked up, him and Dave Ziegler, as I understand it, talking to people close to the situation. Long-term deals made them very highly paid. Mark Davis is a hands-off owner, sometimes to his own detriment, as we've seen. But like they got new facilities. They got to run the show. I think that's what pulled them out to Vegas more than anything. Yeah, Andrew, that is fascinating, though, what you said about the the quote about I could win with a high school quarterback. So now I'm starting to think back. Like, I've always thought the quote in the book from Ann O'Connor about we could win with any top 15 quarterback. I've always thought that that was Joe Judge. Maybe it was actually Josh McDaniels that said that. Yeah, it could have been. I mean, the arrogance like th that gets rubbed off in all these Patriots assistants, be it from coaching Brady and being close to him or anywhere near with Belichick, as we saw with Patricia when he left the Detroit, is just insane. Like, I get you need to have ego be a big part of you, be it in sports media or inside the buildings of all these teams and players and coaches that we cover. But, Hulk, can you just get a reality check of, like, that is the most <laughs> difficult job in, in pro sports, playing quarterback, decided on the thinnest of margins. And you're here saying the margins aren't there at all because I'm here to rub – you know, erase them off and and I'll lay out this path that no one's thought of in almost a hundred years of pro football straight to the end zone every time. Like it's lunacy. Like that it's ego that's out of control. And perhaps, as you mentioned, why uh why they might be on three. Yeah. Unbelievable. The hubris there is just remarkable. That is Andrew Callahan from the Herald and the Pats Interference Podcast as well. Andrew, thanks so much for taking some time, man. I know you're busy during game week. And enjoy Brian Hoyer, who apparently his name is Axel. I never knew that. I don't know why you wouldn't go by Axel, though. Like, that makes no sense to me. If your name's Axel, I mean, I'm a Brian. I would go with Axel if that was my given name. I was just going to ask you. You're not holding out on the rest of us like Axel, Axel Bear here, right? No, no, I'm Brian. But, I mean, I would love to be Axel. I don't know what the hell he's doing. I mean, it makes no sense to me. Great stuff, Andrew. I appreciate it, man. Not a problem, man.
All right, coming up next, we'll chat with former Packers receiver James Jones. We'll get into Aaron Rodgers, that Packers offense, and can the Patriots expose that Packers rush defense? This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, James Jones. Of course, you remember him from his days in the NFL with the Packers, now doing work for the pregame show as well. James, thanks for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Not a problem, man. I appreciate y'all. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I want to get your take on this, right? Because Bill Belichick now 18 and 18 during the regular season since Tom Brady left, 18 and 19 if you count that playoff game they lost. I'm just wondering what the impression is nationally of Bill now that we've seen almost three years without Tom. No, uh, we're basically saying is Bill Belichick the greatest coach of all time without Tom Brady. <laughs> and you want to you want you want to know what's crazy, man? Is I was one of those guys to where. I was like, it ain't Tom's bill. I was one of those. I'm like, it's Bill, man. It ain't Tom. And now that I sit back and look at it, I'm like, dude, you can't be that stupid. You know, knowing how many games, knowing that you done played with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, knowing how many games that they have won you strictly on their right arm. You know what I'm saying? It ain't what Mike did. It ain't how bad you ran a route. It's how special they were. You know what I mean? So, Number one, I think we're just seeing how special Tom Brady was, you know, how how much better he made every single player around him better. And it is extremely hard to win in this league, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's why we see the coaching. That's why we see the coaching carousel every single year. You know what I mean? Because it is hard to win in this league, man. And, you know, right now we're basically seeing Bill Belichick not get the job done with without Tom Brady or, you know, with a quarterback that's not, you know, you know, on the caliber of these these, these high-profile quarterbacks in, in the NFL, man. And, you know, we'll see. You know, there's still a lot of football left. But, yeah, man, Bill Belichick is not looking good. All right, James, so the first three weeks of the season, this Packers offense, not exactly potent. How much are they missing Devontae Adams? You know, I think I think they're missing Devontae Adams a lot, man. And you know what I mean? You're losing the best receiver in football, a guy that Aaron Rodgers trusted when the game's on the line, when you need to get a crucial first down, you know, whenever it's third down, you know what I mean? Coaches to, could create plays to get Devontae Adams the ball. You know what I mean? He's gone. That element of your offense is gone. So now who is going to steal those targets? You know, is it going to be like they've been trying to do multiple running backs on the football field? Like how are we going to try to create explosive plays? So I knew it was going to be a slow start for the Packers offense. You know what I mean? Um, I love the rhythm that they was in, you know, the, that first half of that uh, that Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. I mean, they was going up and down the field at will. I mean, they really should have scored on all three possessions if it wasn't, uh, you know, catch and fumble by Aaron Jones, you know, down there in the red zone. So, you know, I love how Coastal Floor is using everybody, but this is still a work in progress. 
you know what I'm saying, to to figure out, you know, number one, who's going to be that receiver that's going to be the go-to guy to be able to make some plays. You know, how are we going to really create explosive plays, man, in the pass game? The run game is going to be just fine, right? You got Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon in the run game. They'll get into the pass game a little bit, but the receivers are the ones that's going to blow this thing open and be able to get explosive plays in the pass game, and, and we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah, and speaking of those receivers, Sammy Watkins, of course, banged up. It happens to him, it seems like, each and every season, but that would have been a guy that probably would have helped when it comes to that. So this fourth rounder, Romeo Dobbs, their leading receiver, I guess, coming into this game, James, is he somebody the Patriots need to be worried about? Absolutely, man. I think Romeo, especially when you watched him last week in that Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, you see Aaron. Aaron's really comfortable with him throwing him the football. And once he starts getting comfortable with you, you start seeing many more targets. You know what I mean? You start seeing many more 50-50 balls and opportunity balls and all that. And Romeo's been a guy who's really been consistent all camp long in preseason. You know, even though he was out there with Jordan Loves, he's been a consistent player. So I could see him being one of those guys that, you know, really steps up and, and gets a lot of those opportunities that Devontae Adams was getting. And, you know, watching him play on Sunday, I didn't know he was – I didn't really know he was that fast, man. He had that that type of goal button. So I could see him being that guy really giving us a chance to have some explosive plays down the football field. And Alan Lazard, I know he was banged up coming into the season dealing with an ankle injury, but do you think he ultimately emerges as the number one guy for Rodgers? You know what? I'm waiting to see. I'm, I'm waiting to see because Alan Lazar is just one of those guys who kind of does everything for us. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he makes the run game better. He makes the pass game better. I mean, he's just one of those dudes that's just that's really a complete football player. You know what I'm saying? Like, once he came in the game, man, the run game started looking much better. I mean, obviously, he's a guy Aaron Rodgers trusts, especially going over the middle, big body, you know, be able to see some more targets. Man, but to be honest with you, man, when I think this thing is all said and done, I think Robert Tanyan is going to be the number one pass catcher in this offense. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that they're having both running backs, both Dylan and Jones on the field a lot together. So what's the decision-making process behind that, James? Is it just those are two of their best skilled players and they're trying to create mismatches with them two on the field at the same time? Yeah, I mean, as a coach, it's all about really how can I get my best players on the football field, right? The two running backs, other than Aaron Rodgers, is the two best players on the offensive side of the ball. It doesn't matter where receivers are out there. The two running backs are the best offensive players on that side of the ball other than Aaron Rodgers. And how can we get these these guys the ball more and more and more and more, right? Sometimes we're going to have to put them on the field the same time together to be able to get them the football more and more. So I like Coach LaFleur doing that, making that adjustment, having them on the, on the football field at the same time together where you're able to run it and pass it because both of them are extremely good receivers out of the backfield. And, you know, just trying to find ways to be explosive, to get the ball, you know, out of Aaron Rodgers' hands, into the playmaker's hands to create some explosive plays. Does Dylan have the biggest quads you've ever seen? He does, man. We was even <laughs> in the softball game, man. And I'm like, if I was a defender, man, I'm not coming up tackling this dude. You know, you tell all you, you tell everybody shoot his legs, but you like, man, you shoot them legs, you're going to mess around and he pick his knees up or something. You're going to mess around and have a concussion or something, man. No. Quadzilla, Quadzilla got some quads, man. Them legs big. You better believe when they get cold, it ain't going to be too many people trying to come down here to tackle him. 
<laughs> yeah, we're familiar with him here from his work at Boston College when he was in when he was playing in the ACC. So, how about on the flip side of this, James? One of the things I looked at through the first three games, it seems like the Packers have had real issues in terms of their rush defense, and that is one of the things the Patriots can do well with both Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson. So, is it something they've just struggled with early, and you're not worried about it, or do you think this is going to be a problem for them come Sunday? You know what, man? That's still in question, man, because, you know, teams have had success running the football on them. And to be honest with you, you know, a lot of people don't want to say it, but this is going to have to be a defensive football team if they're trying to go where they are trying to go. And that's win a Super Bowl. It is going to have to be a defensive football team. Aaron Rodgers will make the throws when he has to make the throws. But the Packers scoring 40 and 35 and, you know, ready to get in a shootout with somebody, that's not necessarily going to happen. So this defense is going to have to step up, and the Packers are going to have to win games 17-10, win games 21-17. You know what I mean? They're going to have to they're gonna have to step up on the defensive side of the ball. And if you are not stopping the run and you're allowing Aaron Rodgers to stay on that sideline longer and all that stuff, it's going to be a long season for the Packers. So that has to get fixed, and they have they haven't showed me that it's fixed yet, man. So you know I can't trust that it's fixed. You know, so hopefully this game, like you say, coming up to in a really good running game with the New England Patriots with Damon Harris and them boys back there, it'll be a really good challenge for them to, to get started and, and start trying to stop this run. And James, just before I let you go, because I know you're familiar with the league as a whole, so through the first couple of weeks of the season, who do you think are the top two to three teams in the league? Well, I think, number one, Philadelphia is a problem. Um, Jalen Hurts and, and what they have on that offensive side of the ball with with uh, A.J. Brown, with Devontae Smith, with Miles Sanders, with the quarterback throwing the ball the way he's throwing the ball, the quarterback running the rock the way he's running the rock. You got Dallas Goddard. And not only that, man, this defense, Lord have mercy. I mean, they are after the quarterback. They are stopping the run. They can defend on the back end, whether it's zone, man-to-man, whatever you want to be. This team this team has it going. They are scary. They got to click. And if, if anything got to come through Philadelphia in the playoffs, man, a lot of teams going to have to watch out, man. I really like Philly. Um, I'm not a fan of Miami yet. I'm not ready to jump on Miami bandwagon, but I am a fan of Lamar Jackson. And I know they came back on Lamar Jackson and all that, but we know they had no business winning that game. The Ravens are an absolute problem as well, too. And they just keep getting healthier and healthier and healthier. You know, you got you got um, the running back coming back. You know, Marcus Peters starting to get in his groove. You know what I mean? This, this defense is going to get going. Lamar Jackson playing at an MVP level, you know. And then the Buffalo Bills, you know, I think those, those are my top three teams. I know the Buffalo Bills went out, you know, and played the Miami Dolphins and lost the game. You know, they were a wounded football team. No Micah Hyde, no Ed Oliver. I mean, they had like seven starters that didn't play in that football game. But I'm still a believer in Josh Allen and these Buffalo Bills. I think those are the three best teams in the NFL right now. Yeah, I'm with you on the Bills, James. The last two times the Patriots played the Bills, they didn't punt. So it hasn't been fun. <laughs> it hasn't been fun watching the Bills for us. And then the Lamar thing, we watched it last week. I mean, he ended up basically beating the Patriots by himself. I mean, some of the runs that this guy pulls off. I don't even think James in the game last week he sprinted and he's still running man. away from defenders. Man, I'm, that guy I'm is. I'm trying to tell you, he is a special talent, man. That contract is going to be silly. Baltimore is going to regret yeah. not giving it to him. I mean, the price is well, only going up. 
Price only going up, man. Price only going up. He going to mess around and get in the playoffs. Don't let him do a Joe Flacco and even get to that Super Bowl because he going to be looking at $300 million guaranteed or he going to be looking on his way out of there and somebody is going to give him whatever he wants. Yeah, well, I'm just glad the Patriots don't have to play him again this season. They do have two left with Josh Allen, which won't be fun, but that is James yeah. Jones. James, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. All right, coming up next, we'll give you our greatest Boston bet of the week. Plus, we'll get into one big takeaway from the Red Sox this week. And one thing I'm really looking forward to and seeing from the Celtics this year. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. I was not crazy about the line either way. I could see the Patriots backdoor covering this situation, and I wasn't crazy about the over-under either. So I thought I had some fun this week with the prop bets. So I'm going with Damian Harris or Aaron Jones to score two-plus touchdowns. That's at plus 350. So you get a nice little payday there if you hit on that prop bet. Aaron Jones or Damian Harris to score at least two touchdowns of the game coming up on Sunday. Patriots and Packers, which, man, I still cannot believe. I get why it is, because these are historic franchises, so to speak. But now <laughs> that we look at this Patriots situation, 425, Green Bay Packers and the New England Patriots. All right, so I did want to get to one Red Sox thing and one Celtics thing before we leave for the day. So let me start with the Red Sox thing. There is a really big development with this team right now. And I know you're saying, well, they're eliminated from the playoffs. Why do you still give a fuck about the Red Sox? Well, it's for one reason, and that one reason is one player. Now, I also care about Bayo. I told you about that. I care about a lot of guys. I'm just saying important things to calibrate going into the 2023 season. One of them is Tristan Cassis. Our long nightmare as Boston Red Sox fans is over at first base. And I know it's a small sample size. But it's over. Okay, so I had the conversation, of course, with Alex Cora a week ago Wednesday. And if you want to go back and listen to that, I encourage you to do so because Cora was really good. He's very forthright with a lot of things, right? So one of the things I mentioned with Cora is you like the process of Tristan Cassis, right? He doesn't swing at a lot of pitches out of the strike zone. So when he was slumping, right, when he was hitting just 079, not 179, 079 from 9-4, September 4th to September 21st. The process was good. He was only swinging at 19.5% of pitches out of the strike zone. That was the third best in all of Major League Baseball. His walk rate was 13.6%, which during that stretch was 14th in Major League Baseball. So you were just waiting on the results. They weren't there yet. Okay, well, the results have come. So from September 22nd, through Thursday's game, or I should say entering Thursday's game, here were the numbers on Cassis. His walk rate in his last 30 plate appearances is 33.3%. So he's walked in 10 of his plate appearances over his last 30. That is third in Major League Baseball. Okay, by the way, since he made his debut, he's second in Major League Baseball in walks, which is just ridiculous in terms of walk rate, I should say. 
Now, he's still, just like the process we're pointing out, he's only swinging at 21.6% of pitches out of the zone. And obviously, it would be dictated by the number I gave you on the walks, which during this stretch, that's 15th in Major League Baseball. And one of the things that I love about the guy, he got so fucking pissed at himself last night for swinging at a bad pitch. I love that because the Red Sox really haven't had this type of approach at the plate since they had Kyle Schwarber, a guy that, quite frankly, can just really spit on everything. Now, during these last 30 plate appearances, he's hitting 400. The on-base percentage is 600, 850 slug, and the OPS is 1450. During that stretch, three home runs, eight hits, and as we mentioned, the 10 walks. Okay, so you look at why this makes sense for the Red Sox and why this helps the Red Sox so much. First of all, one of the things the Red Sox don't do is they don't walk. They're 17th in walk rate right now. That's 7.8% on the season. Well, now you have a guy that not only hits for power, but will take ball four. Nobody really else on this Red Sox team does this, right? 150 home runs on the season for the Red Sox. That is 20th in Major League Baseball. Well, Cassis already has five home runs, and he made his debut on the 4th of September. So this is a guy that will hit for power. And here's the big one, and sort of the underrated one with Cassis, if you will, because, and you've seen some of the highlights, but the defense has improved. So if you look at these numbers, first base defense since the start of 2021, the Red Sox are 30th in defensive run saved at first base. And by the way, Pretty easy to do the math. 30th, there's 30 teams in baseball. They are the worst of anybody in Major League Baseball as it pertains to first base defense. They are at minus 27 defensive runs saved over the past two years. The team that is 29th is the Detroit Tigers at minus 14 defensive runs saves. So the gap there is, what, 13. And the gap between the Tigers and the 18th ranked defense is 12th. And the 17th team is 14th. So that just tells you how bad the Red Sox have been defensively at first base. How about Cassis? 151 innings and one defensive run saved. So you have a quality first baseman defensively, a guy that will hit for power as well. And the big thing to me is just the defense because, oh my God, how bad was it to watch the Red Sox defense at first base over the past couple of years? Dahlback was horrible there. Franchi was horrible there. It just, and look, this isn't an indictment on Franchi. He's an outfielder that they asked to play first base. But the fact that they actually have someone entering 2023 where they can say, hey, kid, you go play first base. We don't have to worry about the defense, and we know you're going to hit for power. There are going to be strikeouts with Cassis, but you take the trade-off because he's going to walk a ton, and he's going to hit home runs. So this nightmare, it's over. I'm very excited for that. The other thing is this. The Red Sox, in terms of hitting right-handed pitching this year, good in terms of the average, et cetera. But if you look at the isolated power, which basically just subtracts the slugging percentage from the average, it's at 152, which is middle of the road, 15th in Major League Baseball. Well, so far, Cassis against righties, his isolated power is 375. If you're at 250, you're good. He's at 375. Against righties, he's slugging 575. He has a 948 OPS. All five home runs are against righties. And he has a 21.6% walk rate against right-handed pitching. I mean, he fits into the lineup perfectly for next season, especially like also when you have Rafi, who crushes right-handed pitching as well. 301 this year, 371 on base, 559 slug, a 929 OPS and 23 home runs. Just thinking about this combination, and by the way, Verdugo hits righties too. So just thinking about this combination of 
two guys, Rafael Devers and Tristan Cassis at the corners hitting for power next year, it gets me excited about the 2023 Red Sox. And Cassis is very fun to watch. I know he's an interesting personality. Cora was making jokes last week with me about the fact, well, it's 94 in Cincinnati, so he can still sunbathe. He loves doing that prior to the games. But I love everything I see about the kid. I love the attitude. And that shows you his confidence, right? I mean, that's a weird thing you do sunbathing before the game. And the fact that he did that in front of his major league teammates was like, yeah, I don't I don't give a shit what anybody thinks about me. I, I love everything he's brought to the team. And I could not be more excited about what we get to see from him next year. Okay, the other thing I wanted to mention was, I've been thinking about this over the past few days, just in terms of everything that has gone poorly for the Celtics. One thing that sticks out to me is, you see all these tweets of Jalen and Jason Tatum playing against each other one-on-one and all that. And I started to think about, well, could this be a massive season for Jalen? Because he checks all the boxes of a guy that is going to have a big year, right, based on how things sort of transpired last year. So the first one is Jalen Brown is a top 20 player in the league, top 25-ish if you want me to be ultra conservative with that. He didn't make the all-star team, okay? And I get it. Some of it is the Celtics record, remember, at the beginning of the season wasn't good. They really turned it around after January 1st. So, like, I'm not saying that Jalen should have 100% been in the all-star game, but I'm sure he thinks he should have, and I'm sure he's pissed off about it. Second thing is the trade rumors, okay? So this is almost like a personal thing against the organization where he said the other day at Media Day, it is what it is. But you know that irritates the player where it's like, what else do I have to do to prove to you that you should have me here and I should be with the organization long term? So that's the second part of it. The third part of it is the contract, which sort of sort of rather molds into this whole conversation. Two years remaining. Jalen Brown's going to get a max contract. I mean, we all know that, but that's another reason that the guy's going to be motivated. The fourth reason is the fact that, think about what just happened to the Celtics. They lose in the NBA Finals. Jalen Brown is criticized a ton for his lack of an ability to dribble, and I'm not saying that wasn't well-deserved. But also, like, you think back to the Eastern Conference Finals, and I believe that you could have given the Eastern Conference MVP to Jimmy Butler, quite frankly. He was the best player in the series. But Tatum ends up winning it. You could have made an argument for Jalen Brown. In fact, if you go back, I believe he did get actually get a vote for that in terms of the voting process that took place. And I know it's kind of stupid. Eastern Conference Finals MVP, Western Conference Finals MVP. It's a weird situation to begin with. But nonetheless, all that stuff should motivate Jalen Brown, and he seems motivated. I mean, you saw, and look, I know a lot of guys go nuts at the offseason, but you can tell Jalen Brown, like when he says he's in the best shape of his life. You can actually see it. I mean, not that he wasn't ripped last year, but he looks different in terms of the body compensation. Okay. The other thing is this. I I know that this whole situation where, and this is part of it as well, where I think Jalen's going to have a really big year. We've always sort of had these conversations here locally where, hey, did Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum fit together? Remember that was a conversation. That was a narrative for like two to three years. I always thought it was an idiotic narrative because the numbers always pointed to the fact that actually, if you look at the numbers, these guys really do play together. Some of it was, well, does he make this guy better? Does he make the other guy better? And my whole thing has always been what you want in this league is as many two-way wings as you possibly can have because it makes your defense so much better because you can switch everything. It gives you that sort of versatility defensively. And secondarily, that's the most important thing in the NBA is the two-way wing. Outside of Steph Curry, how many other teams are winning championships without their best player being a two-way wing? Now, Giannis is a freak, but he's also that type of player, right, where he can play on the perimeter, he can play inside. Like, Giannis is a freak show, but think about it. Durant, LeBron, Kawhi, those are the guys that win championships for you. 
So when you can get two of those guys, it is advantageous to not only the player's success, but to the team's success. And just getting back to those numbers, this is Tatum and Jalen together. And I believe both these guys now, they share sort of, because it was something that they said to each other after they won the Eastern Conference Finals. They said, break us up. That was, you could hear it. I mean, it was audible, right? So they said that. You see sort of the camaraderie between the two as training camp opens up. And now they both have that chip on their shoulder from losing in the NBA Finals. And both those guys were criticized a lot during the playoff run. And so if you just look at the numbers on these two guys on the court last year together, 118.83 offensive rating, a 105 defensive rating with those two guys on the court together last year. So just to put that into context, the Jazz led the NBA at 116.2 in terms of their offensive rating. With Tatum and Jalen on the court, the Celtics were at 118.53. Defensive rating, the Seas, of course, led the league at 106.2. They had a 105 defensive rating with Tatum and Jalen Brown on the court together. Their net rating together, 13.83. Okay, no duo in the entire NBA was better than that. Minimum of 1,400 minutes. I'm not looking at guys that played like 10 minutes together, right? Minimum 1,400 minutes, which is a good chunk of time. Nobody was better than these two guys on the court together. Best net rating in the NBA was the Suns at 7.5. The Celtics with Jalen and Jason Tatum on the court were at 13.83. So that's 6.33 points per 100 possessions, better than the best team of the entire NBA. So as bad as things seem right now, the Eme situation, I'm not disputing how impactful that could be for the organization this season. The Robert Williams injury, the Gallinari injury, all that stuff sort of adds up together. The fact that you have these two guys still has me optimistic the Celtics would be a top two to three seed, and depending on the health of Robert Williams, can still make a run to the NBA Finals. The other thing I'd point out real quickly here is I chatted with Gary Washburn about this the other day. The Crowder thing is interesting to me. I would love to have Crowder back, and I know he didn't shoot the three as well as he did two years ago, about 34%, just over 34% last season. But this guy always sort of fit into the culture of the Celtics. We know he's exceptionally tough, and the Celtics are sort of short on that wing line, right? Outside of Tatum and Brown, they don't have a lot of wings. Now, you can ask Smart and the Brogdons of the world to play up. They can defend up, but you are sort of short on the wing. So it would be nice to bring in another guy that can defend a three slash a four, and we know that Crowder has the ability to do that. Now, the only bad part about that is what are the Suns looking for, right? Because the Suns are a contending team. So this whole Crowder situation is going to be an interesting one to monitor because they, they're not the type of team, like ordinarily a team would be looking for maybe an expiring contract at a draft pick, but it doesn't seem like based on where the Suns are at in terms of their team right now, that isn't something they would really prioritize, right? They prioritize winning right now. So I do wonder what it would cost. Like you would love to be able to just put a contract in there that you weren't going to use this year. Like for example, Danilo Gallinari, but is that a possibility now that Gallo's hurt? And so he doesn't really help the Suns. So if they could make a deal for Jay Crowder, I would do it at a second because the Celtics clearly need help on that wing line. All right, we're going to be back with you on Sunday, following, of course, the Patriots and the Packers. James White will join us. So if you want to leave us a voicemail on Mac Jones, the Patriots during that game, any reaction to the Celtics so far, if you want to react to Tristan Cassis as well, you certainly can. I'm all for that. The number is 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.